Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Dan Wang, who's based in Shanghai as the chief economist for Hang Seng Bank China. Dan has a PhD in economics from the University of Washington and did her postdoctorate research with the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Agriculture. Before joining Hang Seng Bank, she was a lead China analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Against the backdrop of continued stress in China's property sector, the economic spillovers from dynamic zero COVID, issues in the labor market, and what until now has been a surprisingly restrained countercyclical macro policy response, there is certainly no shortage of topics for us to discuss today. So I thought maybe to begin, why don't we go ahead and start with property? Residential sales were down by more than 25% year-on-year during the first seven months of 2022, and every passing month seems to further delay market predictions for the timing of the eventual recovery. Can you, to begin today, walk us through your diagnosis of China's ongoing property market pressures? Do you see the downturn as largely cyclical, or do you think there is also a structural component to this as well? Well, we are absolutely in the worst housing market recession since there were data available, uh, which was 1992. And now the housing downturn is so obvious that actually home buyers start to lose confidence in whether the housing could still be a good vehicle for wealth storage. We know that the household wealth is about uh, 70% in housing and the rest 30% in cash, in stock market and other wealth management products. And for the Chinese market now, the most difficult situation is in fact in a intentional policy choice. Uh, the housing market in 2020 was in fact very good and that's why the COVID, the post-COVID recovery in 2020 was that fast. Uh, half of the growth was driven by export and the other half was driven by exceptionally strong housing market. But starting in 2021, Chinese government started to implement very strict rules to lower the debt level for real estate developers. And that has a huge knock-on effect in the market because to start with, their debt was quite high among all the Chinese industrial sectors. And given how important the housing market is to China's growth, which is usually about 25 to 30% of GDP growth, such a deleveraging campaign, in fact, choked the growth of that market quite significantly on the year. And later in the year, uh, the central government also introduced the property tax. Uh, it was a pilot, and the expectation was that within five years, there will be a legal framework being set up. But the market was quite spooked. Everybody knows that once the property tax is levied, then uh, the housing market in China will take another big hit. And that's why we see exceptionally weak market already in early 2022. And then there was the COVID control. And after that, now we have the heat wave, which further lowered outdoor activities, including the construction of housing. So overall, I have to say I'm very pessimistic about the housing market outlook. And given that the central government has no intention to relax 
its uh, a debt requirement for the real estate developers, the liquidity will be slowly drained out that system. How much longer do you think the status quo can last before the central government feels obliged to take much more drastic measures to restore market confidence in the property sector and to stabilize growth momentum? The complication this year is the party's Congress. And before that happens, uh, which will be held in October, there won't be any reverse of major policies, including housing policies. We have seen that the regulators have been very reluctant in changing their regulatory stance, including their attitudes towards internet platforms and their attitudes towards uh, property developers. People have been talking about a possibility of a change in policy after October, which I think is possible. But still, we cannot just simply expect a reverse because, especially for the housing policy, since President Xi Jinping proposed the policy of um, the policy called "housing is for living, not for speculation," then it has been implemented with pretty strict compliance. Even in the hardest time this year, we haven't seen real relaxation of the housing policies. There has been some marginal relaxation when it comes to home buying. But when regarding uh, how much the property developers can borrow, how much a bank can park their assets in the property sector, those rules are strictly in place and there's no sign of changing them. I think the central government is quite determined on their choices so far. The economic downturn is quite severe. I sense that they're ready for a hard landing this year. Okay. So it sounds like, in your view, there's possible tweaks that happen after the party congress this fall, but once again, unlikely that there's going to be a, a U-turn given the sort of political priorities that have been well established about about housing and, and the policies around housing. Correct. And COVID control is still number one priority. Well, thank you for those insights. I think with this in mind, why don't we step back and discuss the economy more broadly? So the data for July was just released, the monthly headline data. And I think on balance, uh, most analysts thought it was quite a bit worse than expected. So what is your own assessment of economic activity in China at the present time? And were there any particular bright or dim spots of note that you identified in the, in the latest monthly data release? I was mentally prepared for the data to be bad. Um, but when it came out, I was still shocked by how bad the retail data was and how bad the lending data was. Because in June and July, the understanding was that uh, the COVID control was still there, so people could not go out. Uh, maybe that would restrict their uh, consumption and traveling activities. But in July, for most parts of China, people can travel relatively easily. Most of the companies and the factories uh, were back on their normal operation. But the result has suggested that uh, the retail sales continue to contract for most cities, especially for third and fourth tier cities and counties. That is a result of sharp slowdown of income growth. And then for bank lending, the structural problem got worse. Previously, 
the government was talking about lowering the cost borrowing for the private sector. But it turns out the weak, the demand was so weak in the private sector, even with cheaper bank loans, they were reluctant to borrow. There were also a lot of discussions on whether the government could just give cash directly to consumers like the Western government do. But so far, there is no such sign that they're willing to do it. They still prefer to subsidize uh, companies rather than consumers. There are some policies trying to relax, trying to cut the fees and taxes for certain consumer goods, including cars. It did increase the car sales um, by a great deal in July. But given that people's income hasn't increased much, so what this policy has done is just a redistribution of the car consumption between region and time. People might just move ahead their time when it comes to buying a vehicle. But next year, they wouldn't buy the vehicle again. So the domestic consumer market is quite depressed. That has also reflected in the low employment rate in the private sector. In fact, for the internet platforms, most of them are laying off workers by 10 to 20 percent. And that has sent a bad signal to the job market. I don't think the current situation can improve anytime soon. That has suggested a need for more policy support. But I just don't know what kind of support that a central government is willing to take to achieve that goal. One thing that you mentioned that has given me pause for quite a number of years now is that the government has, has clearly been lowering taxes and lowering rates and all sorts of different fees, but it's not just during COVID. Um, that started in 2018, back at the beginning of the trade war. I wonder to myself, how many more years can they continue to cut these types of rates and taxes without significantly eroding the tax base? You mentioned earlier, they have not explored the sort of consumption voucher or some sort of cash injection to households. Do you have any views on why that might be the case? Why have they avoided this type of policy response? By looking at the system for this long, I kind of get the sense that the government want to spend money on productive things. So they want to see things. And when it comes to subsidies, they subsidize companies directly, hoping that they could provide jobs and that could generate a series of income in the future, rather than just giving consumers and see the one-time consumption. And when they allocate funds, they would prefer to allocate more funds in building things like infrastructure, bridges, roads, uh, water projects. By doing that, even if it is a waste of money uh, for many regions, uh, since they're underutilized, it just seems that it can be used by someone. So this kind of mentality has been in place and it hasn't really changed. This round of COVID control is quite different because it lasted for a long time and has halted major economies in China, especially Shanghai. And for small businesses, people have been saying that if consumption doesn't recover first, then the small businesses just basically lack the momentum to recover on their own. And yet, the local government do not really have the incentive to give cash to consumers. They would still hope to give money to companies 
for them to keep their workers and uh, to increase their investment. I'm not sure if uh, they would change their mind next year because it just doesn't seem like the current measures are working. Reducing taxes and fees are definitely working for whoever has survived in the market. But for companies that will go bankrupt, they cannot enjoy the fee cut and tax cut. And it's just not effective policy. Maybe just to broaden out a little bit, I know that you also do quite a bit of work on the labor market. And I've seen in some of your work, you've even attempted to estimate the impact of the pandemic on employment trends across different industries. And one data point that's really captured headlines as of late is youth unemployment in China, uh, which is, I'm sure, as many people have seen in the media headlines, hit an all-time high of, of nearly 20% in July. And that's even as the headline urban unemployment rate has been gradually, not dramatically, but gradually declining during the last three months. So I'd be curious if you might be able to comment on the specific labor market pressures faced by this 16 to 24 age group at the moment and what the authorities are doing to address them. It is a surprising fact that Chinese youth unemployment rate now is higher than the European countries. It is uh, usually considered that university graduates in China would have the easiest time to find a job. This year, of course, the situation is quite different. There was a pretty uh, weak job market to start with. And then in June and July, the economic recovery was much slower than what people had anticipated. Many companies start to lay off people and cut budget. That has been a problem for all people trying to find a job in the market, but what hit, uh, has hit particularly bad on the youth. One silver lining I want to point out though is this year is also a peak year for retirement because 1962 was China's baby boomer year. Um, before that, there was three years of famine. So in 1962, China added about 24 million of labor, of new birth. And most of those people have started to retire two, three years ago, and a majority of them would retire this year. And that can release uh, quite a number of job openings that can trickle down to those university graduates. Most of the positions, I have to say, were in public sector, the government, schools, uh, state-owned enterprises, and usually senior positions. Of course, the uh, fresh graduates cannot directly take those positions, but uh, there will be different jobs moving around. And somehow it will be easier for them uh, in a year or two to get a relatively good job. So far, the government has been doing several things that are trying to alleviate this year's job market pressure, including to encourage the grad school to take in more students and to create more research positions for undergrads so that they can stay in school longer. And there were some policies encouraging the internet platforms to hire more fresh graduates. I haven't seen a big impact of that policy because, as we know, the regulations for the sector hasn't really come to an end yet. So there is a lack of incentive to increase their scale. How would you characterize the labor market more broadly across China at this time? I mean, is, is the issue of unemployment really just that faced by these, this younger demographic or are there other challenges taking place at this time? 
I think there are two parallel trends happening at the same time. On the basic level, there is a surplus of labor for sure, the mid to lower end of the scale of labor. Because when students just graduated from college, they need to be trained for a while before they can take on real responsibilities in a company. But now those training programs have been either shortened or the companies are just wait, wait before they decide to hire more people for certain functions. So that's pretty bad news for those students. But overall, I don't think the lower skilled workers will have easy time anytime soon in the labor market. The manufacturing industry is going through an even more rapid transformation by using AI or automation in order to lower their labor cost. So that part of the labor demand is quite dire. But at the same time, when it comes to higher value added uh, services sector, there is a shortage of labor. We have witnessed severe shortage in high-end talents in the IT industry when it comes to AI or self-driving or smart manufacturing. And many of those people now have their reservation when it comes to working in China, partly because of the ongoing COVID control and partly because of the uncertainty in China's economic outlook. So there's also a brain drain from China right now when it comes to highly educated talents. For China's labor market, I think the challenge, it is quite difficult to address because the university, of course, need to redesign their curriculum to better match the market demand when it comes to what kind of students they produce. And also Chinese policies about opening up, track the foreign talents, how to facilitate domestic and foreign collaboration when it comes to technology. And those issues are long-term challenges for Chinese government. And before that's resolved, I think it will be a very difficult time for uh, any industry to attract the best and brightest uh, to work in China. Well, it sounds like beyond the headline data, there's really quite a lot of nuance and, and challenges that are um, on the horizon for officials as they try to tackle these problems. I guess it's not really possible to discuss China's economy today without directly confronting dynamic zero COVID. The policy was highly effective early in the pandemic, I think as as, as well known, and, and did set the stage for the Chinese economy to be among the top performers in 2020. But with the availability of vaccines and COVID-19 having become endemic across the world, most observers, at least those located outside of China, argue that adhering to this policy stance has become a major economic burden for China. So I guess for you, my question would be, do you think a full-fledged economic recovery, including to consumption and services, is feasible under the current dynamic zero COVID strategy that is being pursued? I think it's impossible to have a full recovery in consumption and income uh, under the current zero COVID strategy. The main problem isn't about just the lockdown. It is the uncertainty about how many lockdowns in the future. We, of course, all know that Shanghai lockdown was tried quite draconian. Uh, it lasted for more than two months. After that, uh, I'm pretty sure no Chinese city dare to go through that type of strict lockdown again. But uh, the cross-provincial 
traveling is constantly disrupted by random COVID cases. There is a fatigue among individuals and also among local governments because officials have all kinds of different economic target and the social target they need to achieve. But now most of their energy have to be diverted to prioritizing containing COVID. That might be a necessary step for achieving some other goals, which nobody knows what they are, because there's a lack of transparency in kind of political decision making. And now the market confidence is at a, such a low level and people do not wish to consume or spend before they're sure about the future. And that's reflected in the exceptionally high savings rate this year. Uh, usually in a normal year, China's total new deposit would be about uh, 10 trillion RMB. Uh, and this year, just in the first six months, the total deposit already exceeded that four-year number, already exceeded 10 trillion RMB. And that is just saying that people are not spending. They prefer to save their money and see where the economy is going. It's now become increasingly apparent that there is indeed quite a lot of political sensitivity for the Chinese leadership around how and when to relax the implementation of dynamic zero COVID. For example, one of the more salient takeaways, at least in my mind, from the Politburo meeting that took place in July seemed to be this idea that political factors also need to be balanced alongside economic and public health considerations. Just to start, do you agree with that interpretation? And, and perhaps regardless of whether you do or not, in your mind, what does China's exit ramp look like from dynamic zero COVID? Is it a sudden announcement overnight? Is it a drawn out process that happens over the course of several years? Is it something totally different? Uh, just be curious to hear your, your views on that. Firstly, I agree with your assessment, your read of the Politburo meeting. Political consideration this year is so important that it actually dwarfs the economic goals and other social goals or even social stability concerns. Because we have seen the early days of uh, the COVID control in Shanghai, there were quite a number of things that has went wrong and that has caused some serious instability in the city. And similarly in Beijing and also in northeast of China. But it doesn't seem like the government is willing to back down, given the high risk of uh, disrupting the social confidence in the regime and uh, uh, the, the job market stability. And one scenario in my mind is that in the best case scenario, by the end of next March, China could develop an effective vaccine and a treatment drug on its own then uh, it could compare its death rate caused by COVID to other Western countries and say we have such a low death rate because of this uh, and declare success. So it could be a change of policy overnight because by then it won't be a big issue. There's a treatment drug uh, developed by China and the government could just go on to their previous economic goals that were not COVID related. But in other scenarios, if this hasn't happened, if China hasn't successfully developed its own vaccines or treatment drug, and there's constant a new wave of COVID viruses or variants, 
I suspect that the current policy will just be in place, but with a different format, maybe. The execution will still be quite strict. Maybe every few days, everyone still required to take COVID tests. Local government is still responsible for any of the new COVID cases. But the cross-provincial traveling and the border control will be significantly relaxed. And by then, most people wouldn't feel the significant pain that we feel this year when it comes to traveling. And maybe people will get used to it, but I still see that as a major downside risk for China's development in the future. You know, it does look like the existing vaccines uh, that were developed in China, if you've had three doses of them as was recommended, the death rate is severely reduced on a level that, you know, some people argue is, is adequate already. So what do you think is the stumbling block? Is it really necessary for them to wait for further medical advancements at this stage? In my opinion, the government is still worried about the efficacy of China's vaccination because uh, there are a lot of discussions on how well Chinese hospitals can handle more COVID patients. They're worried about Wuhan type of hospital run when a large amount of people just rush to the hospital and try to get tested and treated. The current vaccines in China might be effective, but they may also prove to be not so effective when it comes to the new variant. It just seems that there is still a social stability argument to be made. The current status quo seems to be working. There's a lot of discontent and people are angry about how little freedom they get when it comes to the COVID control. But there are no widespread protests or visible rebellion behavior in any cities, including Shanghai. People seem to be able to just go along with the policy. As time goes by, the situation might change because a lot of people have lost their jobs. And we know that Chinese people love saving. But as much as they can save, those savings cannot sustain that livelihood forever. Maybe after a year, if there are no true relaxation of the COVID control policy, we'll see more social problem in China. I guess it sounds like the takeaway here is that the political stakes are understandably very high this year. There certainly is a risk involved with a relaxation at this moment. So the base case is to, is to wait at least until March or, or perhaps even further on. Well, thank you for those insights. Before you go, I did want to ask you one last question on your previous field of academic research, uh, which I understand is agricultural economics. And I know you've noted in some of your publications in the past that despite being one of the world's largest agricultural producers, uh, China's agricultural output generally lags peers when you measure it on a per hectare or indeed on a per capita basis. So with some of these data points in mind, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what kind of agricultural reforms China could potentially pursue and maybe what's prevented these reforms from being pursued up until now. When it comes to food supply in China, uh, the government has always been quite nervous because they have this vivid memory of the famine in 1959 to 1961. And after that, China has set up the world's largest uh, food reserve system. And it has been quite vigilant on maintaining a certain acre of farmland in China 
despite the rapid industrial growth and urbanization, uh, that quota on farmland has never been reduced. In the past few years, uh, the situation has changed by quite a bit because China has grown more reliant on importing more feed from overseas market, including things like soybean and rapeseeds and sugar, things like that. Especially for soybean, China now have about 85% of its consumption of soybean being imported from overseas market, mostly from Brazil and the US. It is usually a contentious issue when it comes to other bilateral relations. When there was a trade war, those issues would have been brought up uh, the first. To reduce the food security risk, China has been doing several things. One is to give very generous subsidies to Chinese farmers to keep them on the farmland. Basically, now in China, there is no profit at all for doing agriculture without a government subsidy. On top of that, there are a number of government-backed funds set up to support R&D, agriculture-related uh, technology. Um, most of frontier technology, of course, is the GMO. It hasn't been pushed very aggressively, although there's a very strong state support. Chinese consumers have never liked GMOs. Their attitudes towards those uh, type of food is similar to the Europeans. They dislike the change of the DNA of uh, their food directly in the lab. So the government has been quite slow in rolling out uh, their commercialization, those seeds especially like things like corns. But the problem for China is that it lacks soil and water to sustain such a large agricultural economy. So at some point, it just has to rely on new technology to maintain a certain level and certain quality of the staple grains. That's why we have seen pretty strong push, actually since two years ago by President Xi Jinping, in doing more biotech-related research to keep up the food security. And aside from those measures, China has also increased its overseas investment, agricultural land in the related logistics and the port building that's in the background of the Belt and Road Initiative. So there is this all-out measures to make sure that China will have food security despite the volatility in the international market. Thank you very much for your time today, Don. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.